We believe that stones have our shade. We believe that trees and plants, animals are all imbued with this creative life energy force from God. All of the natural world is sacred to us. So how can a person get in touch with this energy, this creative force? Through prayer. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. This week on In Good Faith, we're talking about nature and we're talking about God. And for some people, those are the same things. And for other people, those are very different things, things we treat differently. I'm here with producer Austin Ball. Austin, thank you for working on this episode. Thank you so much, Steve. And this has been fun to to look for people who have different aspects of our human and our spiritual relationship with nature. And one of my favorites was Jay Phoenix Smith, who we'll, we'll hear from in just a few minutes. Indigenous Afro-Cuban religion, leukemia. And this idea of gratitude that anything they do in their practice, which is very closely related to nature, they start by thanking their ancestors. In other words, the people and the reason they're here. We've heard lately about stuff like forest bathing, where you're supposed to be outside and that it's just healthy for you. She talks about 120 minutes was the study that we should be spending 120 minutes in nature every day just to be healthy. I don't spend 120 minutes. <laughs> I need to work on this. We spend our time in buildings. Yeah. I think that the uh, emerging kind of spiritual ecology movement has a lot to do with health. We are very interested in the good life, what it means to flourish. And I think with Phoenix Smith particularly, she thought that connecting with nature was essential to that process, as well as to the ancestors acknowledging that we came from somewhere, mm. that we're not necessarily above nature, but we're of nature. <laughs> and then we go outside for church. And this is with our, our guest, Victoria Lures, who is the author of The Church of the Wild, How Nature Invites Us Into the Sacred. And I was really glad we got to talk with her because of just her personal journey in what I would call traditional Christian circles, and then to really find in that a call to worship in nature and be connected to nature, that seems obvious when she talks about it, but that lots of traditional denominations don't really emphasize from Holy Writ. Yeah, I think hers is a subtle stance because she's trying to balance between traditional Christian understandings of there being, you know, God transcendent and above creation and God in creation. And so her experience, you know, a lot of people in her circles sort of accused her of being a tree-hugging dirt worshiper or something <laughs> along those lines. She doesn't make this explicitly clear, but... I think she's drawing a distinction between pantheism, where God is the universe, and panentheism, where we see God expressed through natural phenomena. Through that as a medium, she gets into contact with the divine. And we pull in some science here with Rich Blundell, and I wonder, what made you want to have him on the show? I came across Rich's work a little earlier this year. He is an activist and ecologist who thinks that by returning to our identity, 
mm-hmm. as beings of the earth. You know, that we came from the mud and the ocean. He's he's a staunch kind of advocate of evolution, I suppose. We can recognize this continuity um, that everything in nature is also a part of us. We're a part of it. And so there's this interrelated web that we need to exist within and kind of holistically approach. Well, let's get started with our first guest, Victoria Lures in Bellingham, Washington. She's a pastor who became an eco-spiritual director focused on the integration of nature and spirituality. She spoke to us on Zoom. I'm sort of a word geek. So just, I love uh, looking at the etymology of words and, and where the words came from and the, and the Greek or the Hebrew words in, in the scriptures. And the word for wilderness in the Old Testament, in ancient Hebrew, is the word bad midbar. And it's a word that, you know, has been translated over 300 times in the Old Testament to mean uh, wilderness, and that's not incorrect. But if you look it up in a lexicon, sort of the, the Hebrew-English lexicon, the second definition is wilderness. But the first definition is the organ which speaks. When I learned that, it was like mind-blowing. The first definition is the organ which speaks. Once I learned that, it started to unravel, and I started to see these stories in a different way. God's self sent almost every single leader in both the Old Testament and the New Testament into the wilderness, including Jesus. Right. And I used to like sort of spiritualize that when I was a, when I was a preacher. <laughs> I would spiritualize it as, oh, it's a dark night of the soul or, you know, you have to go through rough times. But then I started to go, wait a minute. <laughs> what, did the, the, what was the role of the actual wilderness in those stories? What role did they play? And then once I found out that Midbar meant the organ which speaks, the organ of the, the it's related to word Dabar, which means speaking. Mm-hmm. And, and the organ which speaks is the actual wilderness. That, and you look at Moses here, you know, listening to God through the burning bush and through the wind. You know, it happens all the time. We just have these eyes that kind of glaze over it um, when we read it. But that just like totally changed it for me. You know, like Jesus went into the wilderness or into the mountain or into the lake. That word into versus to, which is in Greek, means into relationship with, by the way. He never, ever, ever went into the temple to pray. He always went into the wilderness. So there's something there that's not just to talk to God. Yeah, because I've always thought, oh, yeah, he had to get away from all the people. Right. But I've never, I have never thought he was getting something from where he was. Right. Doesn't that kind of give you shivers? So that's what opened it up for me, is Mm -hmm. that there's something that happens and that even changes, like, the people of Israel being sent into the wilderness for 40 years, you know? I used to see that as, like, a punishment, sort of, or at least a rough background for them to, like, learn something before they could go into the promised land. But what if instead, after 400 years of slavery, they needed at least 40 years to, you know, heal from that trauma in this intimate relationship where they were hearing directly from from the organ which speaks, that, that sacred voice speaking to them in the wilderness. Do you think people who, even people who aren't seeking that or are aware of it, are healed by being out and part of the yeah. nature that we are part of? There's medical and scientific evidence of that now. Hmm. God is so much larger and, and bigger than that. 
So the Church of the Wild is not just the book you wrote. It's not right. just an organization, but it's also a, a movement, a, a group yeah. of practitioners. Can you talk to me about how you've seen that work? Yes, 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 yes. That's what's so exciting about it, that it's not just something to talk about. And it's not just something to experience on your own, where a lot of people do say, you know, nature is my church. And that's great. But there's something missing in that community, in that shared experience of God, that shared commitment to one another and to, and to place. So the movement itself is sort of just happening. <laughs> when I started the first Church of the Wild, I thought I was making it up. And I felt a little bit like a heretic. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you know, I'm just making this up. I'm just going to do this because it was building in me for, for several years. A core practice is this going out of the circle, going out of us, our being collective. We begin together under an oak tree or wherever. And then a core part of the service, 45 minutes or an, or an hour even, is where each person goes off on their own and encounters God basically in, in the natural world. And then we come back together and share our experiences as I thought I was making this up, like within about three months, I started meeting other pastors who were meeting outside who thought they were making it up. <laughs> and what we were making up were so similar that after a while, we were like, this is something bigger than us. This is not, this is not a movement we're trying to create. We're not doing campaigns to recruit people. This is something that is happening. It's a work of spirit. And all we're doing is sort of holding the container in this organization that's the Wild Church Network. And so we never tell people, you know, this is how you should do it. It's more like trust the spirit of God speaking to you as you are yearning for this and longing. And we tell stories so that you can hear from other people. Maybe you can learn something from somebody else. But we're not, we're resisting trying to call it something other than describing what's happening, which changes because that's how life works. <laughs> For you personally, being a pastor and seeing people's interactions with God, and also you, I'm sure, seeking direction, has the way that you perceive teachings or information or answers from God changed as you've taken it outdoors? I think it's like trusting on a deeper level that God is accessible to all of us and making room for it. Like, for example— the first time I held the Church of the Wild, I didn't explain any. I'd been thinking about this stuff and experiencing things and being able to name things and reading and going to workshops and stuff for like three years. So I kind of had a framework for what that experience is of, of what we call wandering. I didn't explain anything. I was just like, all right, now <laughs> go out. And at first it was just 20 minutes and uh, listen. So people were like, really? We're going to go talk to a rock for 20 minutes? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and I'm like, yes, yes yeah. And so they're like, all right. And they go out, they come back, and they like in this sort of state of awe, going, I have walked and hiked in, the, in this area my whole life, and I've never once experienced this, where I stopped to just listen and to just be in this one place. And... We need longer. We need more time. <laughs> and so I think that's kind of the core piece is that that conversation really is an uh, invitation into the presence of God. 
That was Victoria Lures, author of The Church of the Wild, How Nature Invites Us Into the Sacred, from Broadleaf Books. She's co-founder of the Wild Church Network and Seminary of the Wild, and founding pastor of The Church of the Wild in Ojai, California, in Bellingham, Washington. We'll be right back. Today we're discussing the connection between spirituality and nature. And next, a discussion with Jay Phoenix Smith, based in Washington, D.C., an initiated elder in the indigenous Afro-Cuban religion, Lukumi, as well as a therapist who uses ecotherapy as a way to introduce healing to individuals and communities. Jay Phoenix Smith spoke to us on the phone about how the natural world has been important in their life and faith. So ecotherapy is different interventions or different practices that help us to deepen our connection to the natural world for healing. The root of ecotherapy is all indigenous wisdom from around the world. And that is that we are nature, that humans are nature, and that what we do to nature will and does impact us, impacts our mental health, our spiritual health, and our physical health. And also, you know, ecotherapy, the meaning of the word eco derives from the Greek, which means home. And therapy, therapia, the derivative of that, means to care for. So really, ecotherapy is a way for us to care for our home. And when we see the earth as our home, and we see us as, as, as nature as well, I think it can really give us a holistic experience of spirituality. I love hearing about this. Now, all of us have said, oh, I just need to get out and take a walk, clear my mind. And maybe we're unconsciously tying into that. But what are ways that people might actually connect more mindfully and get more benefit from that? Or, Or do you need to work with someone who's trained that way? You know, you don't need to work with someone that's trained that way. But it can be recommended as a form of therapy that you attend to on a regular basis, but I do encourage people to develop their own quote-unquote ecotherapy practice. And so why do I do that? Over the past 200, 300, 400 years, our whole lives have come indoors. There are statistics, I believe, from the Environmental Protection Agency that says we spend over 80% of our time in buildings, indoors, and that isn't necessarily healthy for us physically or emotionally. And so I would just encourage people throughout their day, every day, to spend intentional time in nature. So that could be a walk in a beautiful place. If you're a person that has limited access, maybe you're disabled. Maybe you're just older. Maybe you're in an urban area where there aren't any natural parks close by, but you have access to a balcony where you can grow your own plants. Mm. Uh, You can participate in urban gardening. There's so many different ways that we can intentionally reconnect with nature. As a matter of fact, some ecotherapists are now touting this new data that says we need a minimum of 120 minutes, you know, of time in nature in order for us to really experience maximum benefit. Is that daily? Yes, that is daily. And so that's a lot of time. That's two hours. And so that also can give you an idea of how our lives have changed so much that even thinking about getting two hours a day of intentional time in nature, you know, the barrier, the way that our lives are scheduled, you know, it's not always available to us. I love that in your life you have combined this idea and this ecotherapy 
also with a spiritual practice. And the Lukumi yeah. practice that's an Afro-Cuban related to indigenous practices, I'd like to know how, for you, that connects you to the natural world. One of the ways that we connect with nature and my spiritual practice is that first we always start by giving thanks to our ancestors before we do anything in our lives, before we begin any special spiritual ceremony, before we undertake any major activity in our lives. If we're going to go get a new job, if we're going to get married, if we're going to have a baby, we give thanks to those that came before us. That's the first thing. But then there are also these various deities and forces that we call into our lives. So we do believe in God, that there is God. Another name for God in our tradition is Olodumare. But we also believe that God has helpers that we can engage with in our lives. So we have names for all of the different aspects of the natural world that we believe and we understand as manifestations of God, of the divine. And so everything that I do in my life as an initiated person is always connected to the natural world. Plants play a very important role. We believe that there is a creative energy, a life force that is infused through all of the natural world and and includes us as humans, that's called Ashe. So philosophically, we say that the natural world has Ashe, the ocean has Ashe, the forest has Ashe. We believe that stones have Ashe. We believe that trees and plants, animals are all imbued with this creative life energy force from God. And so in that way, all of the natural world is sacred to us. So how can a person get in touch with this energy, this creative force. So one is through prayer, through the spoken word. And if you can do prayer actually in a natural place, that will really amplify the feeling of Ashe for you, praying at the water. Mm. You know, one of the things that I learned from my mother, and it's an interesting story, that when she was pregnant with me, she would walk by the river and pray. And she was married to my father at the time. I'm the youngest of five children, and my father's from Ohio, but my mother and my maternal lineage is from San Antonio, Texas. So the marriage was falling apart. I was her last child. She was pregnant with me. She was having a very difficult time, but she would pray at the river all the time. And then when I was born, she left my father and moved back home to be with her parents in San Antonio. And if you know anything about San Antonio, San Antonio is known for the river walk. Absolutely. It's beautiful. Right? The river is very central to the narrative of San Antonio. When my mother was passing away and I was taking care of her, I would go to the river every day and pray just to pray for strength and pray to Oshun, the deity of fresh water, and to God for strength and support as I was helping my mother transition. So rivers have a very important role in my life. We say that we each come to Earth, every human comes to Earth with an Orisha as their guide. For many of us, we have multiple Orisha as our guides. And so one of my Orisha that is my guide is Oshun, who is the Orisha of the river. And it wasn't until after I had been initiated, and I didn't get initiated right away. I'd been in in the culture and religion for almost a decade before I was called, and I was called to initiation. I didn't seek it out. I didn't know anything about it. I was suffering. I was suffering from severe depression. I was suffering from severe anxiety. I was trying yoga. I was in psychotherapy. I went to an ashram for a month. I was trying all these different things in addition to psychotherapy and medication to find some kind of peace. 
And when the Orisha called me, they called me and they helped me heal and find balance. And so rivers play a very important role in my life. I grew up in a town that's known for a river. And even now, I moved to D.C. recently a few months ago from Oakland, California. Where do I live? I live on Capitol Hill, and I'm like 10 minutes from the Anacostia River. You will hear many people in the religion have stories where there's a particular place in nature that they had been drawn to all of their life. And then once they get into the religion, once they're called into the religion, they discover that that deity of whatever that natural place is, is the one that is guiding them on the path. We've talked about individuals, but in your project with the Alliance for Social Justice and Ecotherapy, you're combining these. What imbalances or what healing can happen in a community as it connects with nature? I have found that when we do ecotherapy in community-based groups, not just as a model of one-on-one psychotherapy, we can help people heal and feel supported in ways that you don't necessarily feel, you know, in one-on-one ways. Nature can really facilitate that sense of wonder and peace. I believe it's very beneficial to help us really transform how we relate, not only to the natural world, but to each other, where we can really expand our definitions of what is a relationship, (laughs) Right? I never thought I could have a relationship with a mountain. If you would have told me that 20 <laughs> years ago, I'd have been like, okay, what have you been smoking? Like, that makes no sense to me. But through my formative process, through my initiation, that just changed me from the core, from the inside out, through, you know, just walking my path, I, I was able to open myself up where I felt connected to. For example, Mount Tam, which is in the Bay Area in Marin County, it's a very powerful place. It's such a powerful place that spiritual leaders from around the world will come to Mount Tam to do spiritual walks, and it has sacred energy. Like, you might not even have the words for it, but you go to a place like that and you feel this energy, which we call ashe. The principle of reciprocity is a key principle that we have in our religion in Lukumi, and that is a key principle of ecology. It's give and take. When we give to the natural world, because we are nature as well, but when we nurture the natural world, growing food, helping to clean up our waterways, helping to clean up our forests, we benefit as well because Mother Earth is so, she's so generous, even when she's severely wounded. She still gives to us. And so I think there is no separation in my mind between environmentalism and spirituality. When we begin to see that all of the earth is sacred, you know, the waters, the plants, the mountains, then we are able to really get in touch with a higher power, for lack of a better word. That was Jay Phoenix Smith in Washington, D.C., speaking to us about reciprocity and healing. They founded the Alliance for Ecotherapy and Social Justice in 2020, which you can check out at theaesj.com. Our first two guests, Jay Phoenix Smith and Victoria Lures, were located in specific religious traditions. Our next guest, Rich Blundell, is a naturalist working out a relationship between science and spirituality, looking for ways to build bridges between those who might see religion and science as two competing thought systems. Rich spoke to us first about a spiritual encounter that turned him away from commercial fishing. As a little kid, I I spent a lot of time fishing, but mostly like in little ponds and swamps and things like that. 
But then when I discovered the ocean, it just really called to me. I remember the first day I pulled up a lobster trap and I looked down into it and it was just this sample of another world brought to the surface, mm. coated with like this cool, wet, green algae. And then there were these like spiny crabs and shrimp and sometimes fish. And this magical world would come up from the bottom and it would just infuse all of your senses because it was wet and it was cold and it smelled like the bottom. That sort of experience lured me really into being a fisherman, into being a commercial fisherman. So I started off in the lobster industry, which is sort of like a coastal shellfish industry. But eventually I became aligned with the commercial aspects of it. And when you do that, it calls you to go further out, to go for more fish, bigger fish, have faster boats. I was on that path. And one day fishing out on a place called Stellwagen Bank, which is about 20 or 30 miles north of Provincetown, Massachusetts, at the tip of Cape Cod, I caught what turned out to be my first and my last bluefin tuna. We ended up pulling this tuna up, catching, in those days, you just pulled them in by hand with a, with a rope, and then you harpooned them like a whale, and you bring them up on the deck, and it was an 800-pound, gigantic behemoth of an organism. Mm. And it was there on the deck, and everybody was really excited and you know, patting me on the back because this is going to be like, we were going to get so much money for this fish, and... We had to rush it back to the dock because in those days we didn't have, you know, the ice that, that you do today. And when we got back to the dock, which was probably I don't know, three hours later, I realized that the fish, which had been just sitting down on the deck the whole time, was still alive. Not very much, but it was still alive. So as we were put a, a loop around its tail to haul it up onto the dock, and I was reaching down to kind of get the rope around its snout, and I realized that it was still alive and it was really looking at me. And in that moment, you know, there was blood all over the place. Everybody was excited as I kind of just got drawn into this thing and I watched it die. And as it died, the color just drained out of it, out of its eye, out of its body. It was something about the fact that there was this big celebratory mood in the background. But here I was face to face with this creature that I was responsible for killing. All of the excitement about and the celebration turned into something else. It turned into something more like shame and regret. And anyway, I sort of hid that emotion. It stuck with me and I, I never fished commercially like that again. In fact, I decided to um, get my act together, become a good student. I decided to go for like a marine biology, geology degree. And then that path ended up in, you know, having a doctorate in big history. How do you connect that with what you do today? There's two parts to that, really. The first part is just the event itself, just as a curious person, I wondered how could something like that happen? How could, how could something be communicated from a fish to a human? And I don't mean that it spoke English or anything like that, but I mean, how can we connect in those ways? And, and, and that is what made me really curious to learn. So that became the spark of my motivation to want to learn. That's one way that it affected me. But the other thing that it taught me, the other way that it affects what I do today was what I interpret that tuna to have told me or to have communicated to me was to not forfeit the child's experience of the world, like the kid with the, the lobster trap and the, and the magic and the getting lost in the complexity and the beauty of nature, to not forfeit that, to not turn it into a commodity of something that you've just got to go and, and catch and sell for money. That, that was the big sort of insight, I think, that was the deeper insight. And so it, it really taught me to, encouraged me to maintain that sense of wonder and 
curiosity and appreciation and gratitude for life on Earth. In a podcast that you did fairly recently, you talked about the difficulty of talking between spiritual and scientific communities. I wonder if you might comment on that. I would love to hear why you think that. To address that first part, which is about the inevitability of using what you might think of as spiritual language, even though I'm really a scientist, my entire sort of training was about, was the conceptual knowledge of science. But I think what happens is if you accumulate enough conceptual knowledge, in other words, if you accumulate enough book knowledge about the world, and then you match that book knowledge to the lived experience of the world, what you realize is that the conceptual knowledge is is kind of pathetic in terms of explaining the experience of being. You can't really explain it all. However, when you look at the history of the universe, when you look at the story like that, that grand arc of evolution, you realize that it's all connected, that it is all one big continuity of being. When you start seeing that, you're starting to encounter something divine at that point. There's just no way to escape the divinity of that. And then to know that that is in you and that's part of you. And you're not just in the world, but the world is in you. And maybe I'm just inclined to kind of spiritual epiphanies, but I just see it everywhere. I I see that thing we call the divine in the world, and given the story that science has kind of revealed, that includes all of the spiritual traditions, it's hard to escape the divine, you know, if you think of it that way. And everything seems and feels sacred. So I've kind of given up on on trying to divide those two ways of being in the world. And it, it seems to be just fine. You know, there's this phrase that people say, like, I'm spiritual, but not religious. But what I've come to realize is that that doesn't really hold water, in fact sort of think of myself more as religious, but not spiritual. Especially when you think of the, the root of the word religion being lig, as in, as in ligament or as in obligation, that what I'm really on is as much a religious quest as a spiritual quest, because I want to commune with that. And so I just have abandoned this hesitation to talk about things in that, that, that old dualism. It's just obsolete. Well, we talked at the beginning about a, a mission to revitalize a human connection with nature and with each other. And you've come up with some first principles. I wonder if I'll read through these, if you might comment. A, a few of them, reality is continuous. The earth unites us. Ecology is primary. All is relationship. Life is fieldwork. Healing is value. And our future is beautiful. That's not something we hear a lot of these days. <laughs> is it hard to have people catch a vision of this? Or, or even if they catch the vision, are they thinking, yeah, but it's just too much work to change how we do things? Well, it doesn't take work, actually. It just takes changing your mind a little bit. It takes practicing the organ of gratitude that we all have within us. And if we can do that, then what you do is you elicit a sort of positive, positive feedback loop. In other words, this is about story. This is about the stories that we tell ourselves. And if we can tell ourselves stories that that reconnect our health to the health of the planet, what we realize is that by making ourselves healthy, we can make our planet healthy. And by making our planet healthy, we make ourselves healthy. This isn't work. This is actually something more like joy. I think we do have an innate sense of appreciation for the beauty of nature. 
And I think that can be the that can be the portal. That can be the way into this new relationship to nature. And once you start feeling its benefits, once you start feeling the gratitude as opposed to the grievance, then then the relationship takes off from there, and and the earth continues to to cultivate a different sensibility. I think if we can do that, and it can accumulate, it it can self perpetuate. Then then getting back to that other principle that the future is beautiful, then we'll really have a stand a chance at creating that beautiful future. But because the other part of that phrase, by the way, is this, that the future is beautiful or there isn't one. And I think we really need to take on board that if we don't do this, if we don't start, if we, even if it requires that we fake it till we make it, if we don't start seeing the beauty all around us, then it's very likely going to be game over uh, for, for humans. I think it's, it's a no-brainer. Let's, let's choose the beauty. I wonder if if we could finish with talking about relationship. You talk about relationship really is everything because everything that exists, including us, is in relationship with everyone else. Every relationship is actually reciprocal. And this is where this idea that whatever you do to the world, you are really doing to yourself. It's not just a metaphor. It's not just a mythology. It's not just a parable. That's actually a scientific fact which is consistent with all of these, these deep indigenous and religious insights. The science and the, and, and the scripture are saying the same things. Thanks to Rich Blundell for speaking with us today about religion, spirituality, and science. You can learn more about Rich's organization, OIKA, at oika.com. We'll be right back. Today we're talking about nature and the environment, and we thought we'd bring you this segment from Austin, our producer, who asked some young Latter-day Saints about where they go to access the divine. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have a central story in their faith about a young boy going into the woods to pray and receiving a vision from God. If that's your touchstone, where would you go for your own personal direction and revelation? Probably one of my favorite places is the Sawtooths in Idaho. What I love about the Sawtooths is you can go backpacking up really far and really back into the Alpine lakes. And that's probably where I connect the most with God because it's so quiet up there in that atmosphere. There's hardly any wildlife. You can maybe hear an occasional deer or a fish rising in the water or a mosquito, but it's just so silent. And ironically, I feel like that's where I can hear God the most is in just the silence near those alpine lakes. That was Emily Rael, a major in philosophy. In that same conversation was Garrett Maxwell, a major in Middle Eastern studies, who feels God in the grandeur of the stars, mountains, and the ocean. I'll just go out under the night sky if I need to kind of squash my ego, right? Because to me, the revelation of the night sky is always there and waiting, and I don't need words with it, but it makes me feel my the, the brute force of my finitude and my smallness and insignificance, and to me that's a revelation that I constantly need. Other times, like I remember as a missionary, I hit this breaking point, and I just told my companion we need to walk to the ocean, and we, we marched out there, and there was this, this old decrepit wall that was falling apart, and it descended into the into the ocean about 30 or 40 feet and so I I just tiptoed my way down this thing and sat there put my feet in the water 
And from that point, I had almost a 360-degree view of just ocean. I couldn't see anything behind me. It was just water. And it was uh, in that moment when I got some distinct words that I very much needed. Two students, Bethany Hartwell and Nathan McGrew, were studying for a chemistry test at the library and offered their thoughts on the power of hiking as a spiritual practice. There's a lot of hikes up the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina. Um, One specifically is up Mount Mitchell. I went there after I got home from my mission, and I went with my family, and I felt really close to them, and I felt really close to the Lord, appreciating the, the nature and feeling the love He has for us through His creations. What's your favorite part about the Appalachians? The trees. That's my favorite part. Thank you, Bethany. Um, around here, I really like Slate Canyon. It's a really underrated hike. It's a good, good trail. You know, every, every time I go out, I try to my best to connect, you know, with what's around me and with, with God. But typically, whenever I do have, like, large decisions in my life, I will go specifically out to be alone and to, to be able to ponder and to, to think and, and pray. And that's how I've made every big decision, you know, from going on a mission to getting married. Um, pretty much everything has been decided out in, in the woods. <laughs> that's cool. Do you find that solitude um, enables you to listen to the Spirit better? Definitely. Thanks, Austin and Nathan McGrew, Bethany Hartwell, Garrett Maxwell, and Emily Rael for sharing with us their spiritual experiences in nature. Our last guest today is Hamza Iqbal in Great Britain, speaking to us of a Muslim-informed approach to environmental stewardship. Hamza works with the Islamic Foundation for Ecology and Environmental Sciences, or IFES. You can check out the organization at ifees.org.uk. I was trying to situate how to think about the environment in this world because you've got so many different people telling you so many different things. You've got scientists saying, look, we're, gonna, we're all going to die soon. You've got climate change deniers saying, don't, don't listen. You've got politicians saying, look, don't worry, 2050 is the goal. We'll sort it out by then. And you've got people saying, oh, you have to give up meat, otherwise we're going to die. Like lots of different views. So I needed to have a good think about it. And then during my studies, I start questioning things like, you know, why should I even care about the environment in the first place? If we're all just atoms, what's wrong with the environment changing? It's just atoms moving about. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I thought more about how, what does my, my faith say about this? Because I didn't really know. And that's why I, I thought, okay, this is God's universe. It's God's uh, dominion. And if you look at the story of Adam in the Quran, it talks about, you know, God placing a vice regent on the earth and uh, we have responsibility. We don't just do whatever we want. And the verses in the Quran talking about tread lightly on the earth, not be arrogant. And Satan, when when God creates Adam and Satan says, look, the humankind's going to spend corruption on the earth. And God says, no, look, some people will believe and they will do good. And what does that mean? And what does corruption mean? So I started thinking about these things a bit more. And that's when I, re- I came across IFES. I, I was reading a few books and contacted an author of an article. And I met uh, Ajif Azun from IFES and got involved from there. So lots of religious people or people of faith do care about the environment, but typically they will pursue that in a scientific vein or advocacy politically. But it's interesting to me to see different groups who are drawing this and basing it on their holy text and on their faith tradition. Do you have handy that Islamic Declaration on Global Climate Change? 
I'm wondering if you could read that first paragraph in the preamble. So this is a document which is actually created by IFES, right? We want to issue like a statement that we can, uh, we can give out to lots of different organizations and say, this is where we stand. So it starts off by saying, the stars, the sun, and the moon, and this earth all in the diversity, richness, and vitality of its com communities of living beings, reflect and manifest the boundless glory and mercy of their creator. All by nature serve and glorify their maker. All bow to their Lord's will. We humans are created to serve the Lord of all beings, to work the greatest good we can for all the species, individuals, and generations of God's creatures. Thank you. So I think for centuries, people have thought whatever t holy text they were talking about, that mankind was at the apex, meaning we're in charge and everything serves us. But I like this idea that we're in charge and we need to serve all living beings because we're the ones who can make the difference. Is that is that a correct understanding? I think that the idea that mankind is in charge is only like a recent view that comes out of modernity because historically more societies were religious mm -hmm. right, in some, in some way, form or another. And also we didn't have the mastery of the world like we do now. Like guns didn't exist, right? So humans would actually live in fear of things like wild animals like wolves and so on and bears. Nature could cause great devastation like a flood because houses didn't traditionally used to be built in bricks. They're made of mud in many countries. So a flood would just destroy your home and landslides and all these kinds of things. Humans are very dependent on nature. So we didn't have this view of mastery over it, like agriculture and our food. If God stops the rainfall and that's it, what do we do? And now we have a bit more kind of advancement in technology where I think we've kind of deluded ourselves that we think we have some kind of mastery. But traditionally, for most of history, that wasn't the case. Bringing back faith into the discourses about reminding mankind, telling us, look, we're not in control. We might think we are with all this fancy technology, but we're not. God is always in control. And the way he tells us to live is the best way for us to live. So with IFES, I'm wondering if you could talk about what the projects are that try and address climate change. A lot of grassroots stuff is about just spreading the information, spreading the idea of Islam and to Muslim communities about what the faith has to say. So trying to get mosques to, in their sermons and so on, talk about the environment a bit more. There's one big project we've been working on, which is called Al-Mizan, but it's in collaboration with the UN. A team of scholars are drafting a document which will be presented towards all the Muslim countries the environmental ministers at this meeting that's going to happen. And we want them to ratify that document and say, we pledge to commit policy towards tackling climate change because they're Muslim nations. And based on the faith, they will ratify that agreement. So that's that's one of the big projects we're working on right now. Boy, two questions come to mind. When you approach an imam with a mosque, and either in person or with materials, Generally, are they open to considering this environmental aspect coming from the Quran? Yeah, generally they are, because there are examples, a verses which we can directly relate. And there's also hadith as well from the biography of the Prophet Muhammad, which kind of advocate environmental values anyway. So it's not like a new thing is being presented to them. It's just an affirmation of the values they already have. Let me read from another paragraph, just a sentence or two from the Declaration on Global Climate Change, the Islamic Declaration. It says, Climate change in the past was instrumental in laying down immense stores of fossil fuels from which we derive benefits today. Ironically, our unwise and short-sighted use of these resources is now resulting 
in the destruction of the very conditions that have made life on Earth possible. So I find it interesting that some of the countries you may be talking to, for instance, the energy ministers and others, they are actually ministers in countries that are majority Islam, but also many of them are oil-producing nations, for instance. Is that a difficulty? It's not a difficulty talking to the ministers. Mm-hmm. Um, they're always all happy to hear you when you meet them. Um, and also because a lot of the Muslim nations are in uh, countries which suffer the majority of the effects of climate change. Like the Maldives is practically already underwater. So its average altitude is below sea level already. Mm-hmm. Um, there's countries like Pakistan, which, you know, of course, recently had the flooding. But the whole area in Asia, Middle East, they they feel the effects of climate change quite severely already. In the, um, Arab countries, they've already noticed the temperatures been climbing and climbing recently. 50 degrees is becoming a far more common temperature. And that that's, you know, it's very, very difficult to survive in 50 degrees heat. Yeah, um, pe- pe- people area. and crops. Yeah. And also mm. the rivers drying up, like the Euphrates and the Tigris and so on. And that creates even more issues because it's not just CO2, it's also fresh water. As fresh water dries up, that's a big issue for irrigation of crops. It's energy intensive to desalinate water from the sea. Ideally, you just want to get it from a reservoir or something or a river. But if you haven't got rivers anymore, then that's a big issue. We are experiencing that here in the state of Utah, where we're located. The Great Salt Lake is at record lows. I mean, some islands aren't even islands anymore. We're seeing that as well, and we're finishing our our second week of over 100 degrees, which are new record highs for the month of September. So I wonder if you could talk about some specific teachings from the Quran and the Sunnah that inform your ideas about global climate and biodiversity and even waste disposal. You know, the hadith, which are sayings of the Prophet or events which happened. So there's one event which happened in his lifetime where a person, a merchant had a camel and the prophet rebuked the person for loading up the camel with too much, too many goods. He's like, don't even care about the camel's back. So there's a clear concern for the welfare of animals because the prophet's rebuking a guy for exploiting the animal. Like God says in the Quran, it's okay, you know, I've created animals for you and you can use them for food and so on. But there's a balance there, like you don't mistreat them. You have to take care of, take care of things you're responsible for. And there's also another hadith where I think some companions of the Prophet are performing ablution before prayers. So, you know, before our five daily prayers, we need to uh, wash ourselves, our hands and elbows and face. And he says, you know, don't waste water even if you have to river. So this talks about the idea of a public good and, you know, tragedy of the commons, which is an economic term, right? When too many people use a common resource, but the Prophet talks about not being wasteful even if you have to river at an abundant, plentiful source because... It's not just us, it's future generations, it's animals use the river, etc. It affects our landscape. So there's, an envir- there's a clear environmental ethic in Islam. Mm. Aside from science, when you are out in nature, do you find God there? Absolutely. One is, because the Quran refers to nature in so many different verses. In Arabic, it actually refers to the earth and the world as, the Arabic word is called ayah, which is like a, a sign, an indicator pointing to God, because... The whole world should actually just point to God if we think about it. Like the existence of night and day, the cycling of the seasons, like the death, death and life, resurrection. God uses the analogy of plants and 
agriculture, but like, you know, who brings the rains down, who holds the clouds up there. I know we can scientifically describe how these things happen, but we can't cause vegetation to grow out the ground. Right. We can put water on it, but God's in control. God holds the atoms together. Because if you think about it, you've got droughts, you've got droughts. This is God withholding his rain. And if he withholds it much longer, we're all going to start praying. So we've been talking about nature. We've been talking about God. We've been talking about how they intersect or how they even maybe are the very same thing in, in some ways of thinking of this. Austin, uh, thanks for getting these guests. Thanks for helping in the production. One of the things that really has struck me with all of these guests is how much of our attitude has been given to us that we're unaware of. For instance, I walk outside and I think, well, I see nature. I see it as it is. I experience it as it is. But I'm thinking of it from my background. For instance, Hamza Iqbal He's trying to address climate change, but do it through scriptural teachings and having success because he's presenting those scriptural teachings to different leaders in mosques and finding great acceptance because they say, well, this is here in the Quran. And the method of that approach is important because you talked about Western culture. I think a lot of that idea that we can sort of subject and use nature to extract its resources and make a profit off of it comes from this notion of dominion, that God gave us dominion over the earth. With Islam, it's much more clearly a stewardship, something that we're given to watch over on God's behalf. And I really love that word that you used. Yeah, I think that there's room to interpret the concept of dominion in that way with the Bible. But I love the approach that Hamza is taking because it is scriptural. It's coming from an obviously religious perspective, um, and it emphasizes our responsibility to protect the world. I'm wondering what things uh, struck you as a common thread. Yeah, there's a perennial manifestation, I would say, of a particular idea across all um, people who are interested in spirituality and nature, and that's the theme of interrelatedness, that our being relies on the being of everything else. Mm. Um, that requires of us a principle of reciprocity. Everything that we take, we have to give an equal measure. And that's a sort of accountability and way of relating to the world that enables us to see the sacred value of all things. And we started off, you used the word stewardship, which really is... Our Because as mankind, as human beings, we have such an outsized ability to affect what happens on the planet more than any other organisms in, in, in many ways. I love this idea that Hamza gave us. He's talking about from a scripture, from commentary in the world of Islam, this idea that, yes, the camel can carry and can help you, but you don't overburden it. And that you have to be responsible. And I think it's interesting that something as simple as someone with a camel in the desert is a great representation of mankind riding on the earth and how we, how we treat that. And for some of our guests and for me and you, others who believe God is part of this equation, that stewardship idea is a great reminder that we are connected, as you said. Absolutely. 
Thanks for joining us today. Our episode was produced by Austin Ball and Heather Bigley with engineering from Peter Ellison. Daniel Phillips and Sam Claussen were responsible for editing and sound design. And thanks again to Hamza Iqbal, Rich Blundell, Jay Phoenix-Smith, and Victoria Lures for sharing their thoughts and experiences with us. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts. That helps spread the word. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at In Good Faith Pod and our Facebook page at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.